everybody. Welcome back to the big show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, episode 62. And we, as always, are your hosts, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Getting my Lent uh, going just now. This is the fifth week. It, it takes a while. You got to ramp up. You, ramp you know, up. you right. slowly introduce the fast. Slow and steady wins the race. You know, right? yeah. I mean, I started yeah. with an ash cross and now I'm getting in, you know, I'm washing in go. ashes now. As we say in jiu-jitsu, if you can't do it slow, that means you can't do it fast. <laughs> I am Donovan Riley, and again, this is As Lutheran As It Gets. Again, this week, we continue with Dr. Martin Luther's commentary on the penitential Psalms, Psalm 38. Our teacher and doctor. Our teacher and doctor. Verse 4, Psalm 38, verse 4. My iniquities have gone over my head. Dr. Luther writes... They have subdued me altogether and are greater and stronger than I am. This is due to the arrows which make sins so manifold, so great, so strong that man can neither help nor counsel himself, but lies there utterly helpless. Hmm. Right? We've talked about this, especially when we did the episode on Psalm 6, but his commentary on the penitential Psalms, at least in my opinion, are some of his most powerful writing. And I, I wonder about that, if it's not just the way that his particular conscience was uh, <laughs> pricked, sure. you know, yeah. as he would describe it. So so that he had been through, I mean, he'd really terrified himself uh, to the point of like utter despair. They had, mm. And once you're there, um, then you can really talk about it. <laughs> well, he's These are coming out in 1525. Mm-hmm. What else is happening? Well, Obviously, the debate with Erasmus on the bondage of the will, marriage is also happening. Mm. Uh, remember, for those of you who don't know, all of his colleagues, for the most part, were opposed to him marrying Katie because there's, I think I brought it up on this podcast before, there was an, a late medieval myth, myth that said the apocalypse will come about because of the marriage of a, uh, an apostate monk and a runaway nun who will give birth to the Antichrist. This Whoa. is an actual legend in the late Middle Ages. Oh. No, this is real. Yeah. So when Katie gave birth to their first child, their son, there had to be witnesses on hand to basically say, to, to attest to the fact that the child did not have a pig's tail. Because that was the sign of the Antichrist, was if you were born with a pig's tail, a curly Q tail mm. coming out of your lower butt. Yeah. Little baby Martin, also the Antichrist. Right. He did renounce, he did, he was an apostate later did in he? life. He did mm-hmm. renounce the faith. Yeah. Pastor's kids, um, not the best. Uh, so, <laughs> so they were opposed to it, not only for the mythic qualities of it. I mean, obviously, if you grew up with that legend, and they all did, mm-hmm. it was popular apocalyptic mythology. And then it all of a sudden actually happens in front of you. <laughs> Luther's declared apostate and then ends up marrying a, an actual runaway nun. Hmm. How do you not take that seriously? How do you not say that, see that as a sign? Well. But then practically speaking... This is 1525. This is the height at that moment. That was really the height of the fervor around the Reformation. Yeah, it's gotten pretty intense at this point. Very intense. Mm. And Luther in 1525 is coming out of his first lectures on Genesis. Yeah. His lectures on the Galatians in 1521 and 22. There's a lot. Ecclesiastes lectures come out at the exact same time too. So if you read, unfortunately, the... First Genesis lectures are not translated into English, which is a crime in my opinion, because those lectures on Genesis lead directly into the bondage of the will. Ah, okay. 
And if you read Luther's later Genesis lectures, he actually refers back to the bondage of the will in those later lectures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for him, there is a thread there. There is a connection between what he's lecturing on and then how he responds to Erasmus. And even in the Ecclesiastes lectures around the same time, like I just said, he actually mocks Erasmus in those lectures wow. for what he teaches on the freedom of the will to participate in salvation. But context matters, right? And I think yeah. there's there's evidence of you know some of David's laments about, especially about his enemies being written like in the time of war, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, are coming back out of out of war, out of right, you know, uh, difficult, you know, watching you know his friends and soldiers die. Uh, and and then he laments because uh, that's mm-hmm. his, that's the con that's what you do that's how you respond right. to it is you know how long oh lord that kind of thing. Well, one of my professors made the comment, and I like the I've always used the phrase since he first said it is that there is a force to exegesis, hmm. especially in Luther in that this time there's a force to his exegesis. This isn't just a polite academic exercise. This right. is a public confession of his faith because he's been excommunicated. Therefore, if he leaves Saxony, he's under penalty of death, immediate death, if he's captured. And now people are coming from all over Europe, Eastern Europe, Scandinavia. People are even sneaking over from Great Britain. Tyndale's coming to stay with with him in Wittenberg to consult with him on his translation of the Bible. So Luther's at the height of his academic prowess, his intellectual prowess as a leader. Everything coalesces around this time. Mm -hmm. And... So yes, the context, like you said, David's context in the midst of war and conflict and attempting to organize the kingdom. Or like in Psalm 51, you know, his... Right. um, Lamenting. Yeah. yeah, um, After both the accusation and... um, Right. Yeah. Judgment of sin. David definitely lives up. We were talking yesterday, a guy I follow on Instagram, Dakota Meyer, was asked, what what do you do um, when you think about past mistakes? And he's Hmm. like, well, I make another one. And David, definitely, that applies to David 100%, right? Well, you're supposed to learn from your mistakes, right? Right, right, exactly. David, you uh, you did this thing over here, so uh, what are you going to do now? I'm going to make another one, probably worse than the last one. That's mm. kind of how this works. <laughs> and yet, because of the conflict around David and the overlap of conflict and belief in his confession, in his writing of the Psalms, I think that's the thing. Here you have this medieval monk, Martin Luther, who comes of age in his faith, so to speak, in the Psalter. We've talked about this. He's reading, he's praying his way through the Psalter every week. He's praying the hours. He's not only praying the Psalms, he's meditating on them, studying them. Eventually he begins to teach them. Mm -hmm. He's chanting them. They're the bedrock foundation of his Christian confession. Mm. So there's that too of, these are not just abstractions. These are not academic intellectual exercises to him. But the longer he is grounded in the Psalms, the more the Psalms inform his entire worldview. Mm. Yeah, how he relates uh, to God and how he relates to his neighbor. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and think about, I think we've all gone through this who have studied Luther in the present tense. We read Luther, but we are not up in that context. And so we tend to wonder, why is Luther so harsh here? Ah. Or why is Luther so pointed there? Or why is Luther theologically carpet bombing me in this psalm? Like, why is he so urgent? And why is he so pointed? And why is the force of exegesis so powerful? Well, in the present tense, we can treat these as polite academic exercises because we tend not to see the whole world through the psalms uh, because we're not grounded in them in the way that Luther was, having Mm -hmm. memorized them not only in Latin, but then translating them (laughs) into into the German from the Hebrew and the Greek. 
so these, this is a living language that confesses a living God. And he's swept up in that. That's the force of that exegesis. Whereas in my experience, we tend not to do that because we want to keep God's word at a safe distance. Mm-hmm. We want to subdue it so we can have control over it. But when you enter into that, then when that becomes your language, your confession of the Christian faith, like I said, becomes your worldview, now all of a sudden that force of exegesis comes out in your confession, in your life. There's an intensity to it, right? Yeah. And our, I mean, our worlds, we'd like to think that they're very, very different. And in some ways they are. I mean, as far as right. safety and, uh, you know, poverty, uh, something like uh, 1920, you had something like 70 or 80% of the world living in, in poverty. Right. And now it's something like 9% or less, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. It's pretty incredible. I mean, we've we would say as a, as a human race, we've made great strides. And so, yeah, things are a little bit easier are a lot easier, mm-hmm. uh, and we are safer than we've been before. And so, you know, we're not having to engage with, like, this brutal reality of things in right. the same way, because we, we've actually set some of that aside through our own effort right. and strength. Uh, and so, where is God in that then, right? Right. Uh, you know, he doesn't really get credit for our improvements, <laughs> for, for yeah. uh, you know, the way that, that we're uniquely blessed now relative to, say, the, the world that Luther lived in. Uh, right, but consequently too, he gets he's just he's set aside. He's he's forgotten. That's a great point. I was uh, yesterday's epistle reading was from Hebrews four, and I preached on that Jesus being the pure sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading through Luther on Hebrews, his commentary on Hebrews again, and I hadn't picked it up in a, in a while actually. And I like, <laughs> I love actually when I pick up a book I haven't read in a while and I open it and I have notes from my graduate work. Hmm. Because that's what I would do. I would take notes in the books in class. I wouldn't take them on notebooks because I realized I put my notebook away and then forget about it. And so I started just writing. And you're never going to open those notebooks because you could never find your notes anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And the note that I'd written in Hebrews 4 from Luther is that God is not revealed through our active works, but through our passive suffering. Hmm. And this is the point, is that prayer, psalmody, is passive, not active. Yeah. We are confessing, like he points out, sin is greater than I am, it is stronger than I am, and it has subdued me altogether. This is not an abstraction. This is not a a bad habit that we've developed. This is not a psychological malady. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sin is an actual power that is, it has greater force and it is stronger than I am. Yeah. And due to the arrows, so let's say bullets in the modern context, which make sins so manifold. So we're talking about Essentially, he's framing this in the sense of sin is like a great army that has taken the field against me. Yeah. Something, by the way, that David would obviously understand as a soldier. <laughs> and read Psalm 23. He's hiding in a cave with his, with his elite special forces bodyguard, and the entire army of Israel is outside the cave. And if they pop their head up, Saul has ordered his entire army to fire mm-hmm. on sight, kill mm-hmm. them all. Yeah. He, he understands military language, and so... Luther just picks this up because, of course, Luther himself would understand this in his own day and time. Sure. This is due to the arrows which make sin so manifold, so great, so strong that man can neither help nor counsel himself, but lies there utterly helpless. Well, to the point, how often do we conceive of sin as this force that has taken the field against us, that overwhelms us with their numbers and their firepower? And if we pop our head up, sin will just shoot us dead. Hmm. Because what is the wages of sin? Death? Uh, I don't think we take sin quite that seriously. Right. We don't. We tend to psychologize it. Mm-hmm. It's the therapeutic gospel we've mm-hmm. talked about before, yeah. which comes out of that moralistic therapeutic deism. Sin, sin as you know, just moral failings or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, moral failing. Exactly. 
Uh, and the other aspect of this too is that Sen, you know, presented as this army, but right. actually under whose command? And that, yes. and that, that right. God actually uses our sin against us. Right. And in his commentary on Psalm 23, Luther says the rod and the staff of the devil are sin and death. Hmm. That's what he uses against us. And in sin in the sense of the law convicting us of our sin, and then death being the consequent. So therefore, when the devil wants to scare us away from faith and drive us back to his house, this is his rod and his staff. Right. His rod with which he beats us is the law, but it's the law that condemns and damns. And then the, st- the staff that guides us is death. Hmm. But even then... Uh, I, the point I was getting at is that, yeah. you know, as Luther would say, um, the devil is God's devil. That right. <laughs> naively, um, the devil is still doing God's work. Uh, it's his alien work. It's not his proper work, right? right? That's how we define it as Lutherans. Um, meaning, you know, he doesn't accuse of sin or, or, or right. you know, show the wages of sin in order to leave you there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, when, we, when we did the episode on Psalm 6. Mm. God disciplines us in his wrath and in his grace mm-hmm. simultaneously. When, the, when God's devil comes to us, he is disciplining us in his wrath, but to faith, it drives us to Christ. Yeah. Heavy stuff. Very heavy stuff. So back to the book. Continuing with verse four, they weigh, that is, my iniquities weigh like a burden, too heavy for me. Luther comments, heavier than I can bear, as is written in Psalm 65, verse three, quote, Lord God, the deed of our sin has overwhelmed us. Be gracious toward our iniquity, unquote. Thus our sin treads us underfoot until grace comes, treads sin underfoot, and raises our head above it so that we become master and rule over sin, not sin over us. Hmm. Those, however, who lie in sin, who are either dead or too holy, do not sense these things. Therefore, it is an amazing thing. He who has no sin feels and has it, and he who has sin does not feel it and has none. For it would be impossible for him to complain about and against sin if he did not live in righteousness and grace. One devil does not drive out the other, Mm -hmm. Luke 11, Mm -hmm. verse 18. Sin does not accuse its kind. One wolf does not cry out against the other wolf, and yet... It is impossible for him who cries out against sin to be without it, for he dares not speak to God in fiction. (laughs) It must be true that he has sin, as he says, and yet also true that he is without sin, just as Christ was at the same time, truly alive and dead. So also those who are real Christians must be full of sin and without sin at the same time. Hmm. I do believe we call that the simile. Uh, there it is, yeah. Again. Um, this expression about being tread underfoot, right. uh, both by sin and then by grace. It's yeah. like, uh, where, where else? It's right. another psalm talking about the marks upon our back, right? Yes. Excuse me, pardon me, pardon me. Excuse me, pardon me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. It's like uh, outside the soccer game, you know, when people just get kind of stampeded. Right. And uh, that, but that's the expression. Like a rugby scrum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you just, if you don't want to get caught at the bottom of the pile. Right. It's going to be pretty. No, never, never. But once you've been there, you can speak of it, which is his right. point is that those who talk about their sins all the time know their sins. Right. They're, they're not ignorant of them. They actually know them right. or they couldn't speak of them at all. Right. 
And uh, we've talked about that in regards to like pastoral ministry and pastors. Right. You know, when you when you do name particular sins, it's because you know them. Yes. If you right. did not know of them, if you didn't know of I don't know right. second table stuff like adultery or hatred or right or or theft or of, uh, coveting, you couldn't speak of it. Well, and to re- return to what we talked about in previous episodes. Jesus has, was made to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. It's a dual reality. We just talked about perspective here. Yeah. This is the dual reality of the Christian life. We are not sinner or saint. We're not sinful or righteous. I'm getting better. Yes, I'm getting better. But rather, to kill that treadmill, to kill that linear understanding of going from vice to, to grace... Mm. Here, and I think we talked about this the other day, I was explaining, I'm reading this book called Gates of Fire by Pressman, Pressfield, Pressfield, uh, Stephen Pressfield, about uh, the Bible of Thermopylae and describing the, the, um, the Greek um, way in which they waged war, the Spartans in particular here in this instance, that the submissive, as they're called in Greek, is the person who stands behind the frontline troops. Mm. So the frontline troops have their shield, and then they have their eight foot long spear, which they balance on their right shoulder. They drop it and it sticks out over the, the side of their shield. And the submissive comes up behind them and not doesn't just put their forearm into the lower back so that, to support them. They push their entire shield into their back. Mm-hmm. And then the man in the third rank pushes his shield into the man in the second rank all the way back, eight ranks up to 24 ranks. Right. So they would train from the age of four or five years old so that they could become comfortable being crushed from behind and in front. Because again, you're doing this because an army is coming straight at you full speed. So the front line, the first, second, and third row of troops, of soldiers, are literally being squashed between the enemy and their own uh, brothers. Yeah. And if they fell, because of the pressure behind them, that next guy behind them just, boop, popped right into place. Yeah, and that's... uh... The structure of the family that uh, Paul gives, right? Yes, that the husband's exactly. at the front, <laughs> yep. being crushed under his wife, basically, and his right. wife's pushing on right. his back. And his children behind them, right? Yes, and and right. who's the safest, of course, is at the back, right? Uh, and who bears the brunt of all of the attack is at the front. And I, at least for myself, when I first read that definition of what the word submissive means in Greek, hupotasso, right? Yeah. I had that image of the wife standing behind the husband with her forearm brace, kind of a frame, left left arm against the right arm, kind of bracing him from behind, mm-hmm. leaning into him, versus the actual account of the Greeks, which is to take your shield, this five-foot tall shield, and just shove it into the guy in front of you, so you become like this moving tank of humanity, of flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And yet, the, to use the analogy that Luther uses out of David... Sin is coming at you from one direction to trample you, full speed. Right. Then grace is behind you, moving you forward at full speed. <laughs> and if you fall, you'll be trampled by both. And yet in your death, you'll be raised from death. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. It's so, beautiful. But you could know nothing, and the other aspect here is you could know nothing of that grace unless right. brought face to face with sin. 100 That's what I was going to say, exactly, that sin isn't a thing. It's a force that comes against you. And you can literally not only feel it, you can see it, you can hear it, you can taste it, and it touches it. Because the agents of Satan are flesh and blood, mm-hmm. just as the agents of grace are the instruments of God. I baptized a baby yesterday. I'm the instrument of God's grace. I'm the hands and the face of God, mm-hmm. as Luther says. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and you've got death and judgment and, and the devil right, um, right there. Um, you yes. know, it's the battle line. 
Um, right. With with grace, God, forgiveness, right. new life. Yeah. Right. And to baptize this baby literally at the kitchen table in this instance, of course, Psalm 23 immediately comes to mind that he sets a table for us in the midst of our enemies. Mm-hmm. So now instead of just the the plain old, hey, this is like Thanksgiving every time we come to the Lord's <laughs> table, now I'm at the table at the font mm-hmm. baptizing this child. And now, like you said, it takes on a whole a height. And again, there's the force of exegesis. Yeah. The literal force of exegesis is not only are we baptizing this child into God's grace, welcoming this new daughter of Christ into his family, but to your point, sin is then driven away, yeah. defeated, overrun again. We don't, I mean, we don't think of baptism as a violent act. Uh, anymore, yeah. No, no. I mean, Luther Luther does in his um, baptismal rite. 1525, which, right, by the way. Yeah, which we have actually available to us uh, as mm-hmm. a resource, at least with our... Um, used to use it before people hand. got freaked out by the whole driving out the evil spirit. Well, yeah, because you say out unclean spirit, make yeah. make room for the Holy Spirit. The like, exorcism. what? What are you talking about my kid that way? For? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what are you saying? And like, no, this is exactly what's happening here. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, the other aspect of this is that if you choose not to engage in the warfare... So if you right. decide to walk away, hide from your sin, you're also hiding yes. from grace. You're hiding from yes. forgiveness. Right. And, uh, and so there's no warfare happening, which seems peaceful. And you, I suppose you can seem somewhat content with it, except um, sin's still coming for you. Right. You know, it's still, it knocks at the door or uh, the various ways the psalmist said. Well, but. and you can pretend either through <laughs> naivety or willful ignorance that this isn't true, this isn't real. But it is because biblically it's testified to, and in the writings of our favorite theologians, it's testified to. Mm-hmm. And as you noted, it doesn't matter how safe and how you know we nerf the world to make it safer. It doesn't matter because the quote I sent you last week by um, Andy Stumpf was, what you allow in your presence is your standard. Mm-hmm. What you tolerate becomes your standard. So if you tolerate sin, death, and hell in your presence because you undervalue or undersell baptism, right? then you're tolerating in your presence sin, death, and hell. That is then becomes your standard. Well, and that's the uh, and, the slow slide into apostasy, basically. Right. Well, and the literal meaning of the word standard, a flag. That's mm. what the standard was. It was a flag that flew above the army when they marched off to battle. Mm. And so long, and I'm listening to a Hardcore History with Dan Carlin on the Celtic Holocaust about Caesar's campaigns in Gaul. And there's an... Um, uh, a moment there where they're overwhelmed. Caesar has brought his front troops up. They're digging their trenches. They're setting up their 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 fort in advance of the rest of the legions. And the enemy waits for them kind of to drop their guard, so to speak. And then they rush out of the woods in mass to overwhelm Caesar before the rear guard gets up there. And Caesar grabs the standard. And wherever the fighting is the worst, that's where he runs with that standard to let them know Caesar stands amongst you. Mm-hmm. Fight harder. And they did. That's what the word standard means. Mm. It's literally this flag that stands above the battlefield so that we know here's our center, here's our front line, here's where we're strongest, here's where we are reinforced. When you see that in uh, Easter iconography and imagery, where Christ is coming out of the grave, but he's holding the standard. The standard, exactly. Right, he's leading, if you like, he's leading the charge. Yes, right. Leading the captives in his train. Well, it's like with Joshua and the and the and the armies, right? Right, right. Who stands at yeah. who stands at the front? The the angel of the Lord. And so again, what we tolerate in our presence becomes our standard. It becomes our front line. It becomes our our center. Yeah, but if so, if sin is tolerated, um, right? <laughs> what happens? It's like boiling the frog or something, right? Yeah, right. Where you're just you slowly just sink into 
into it until the point where you don't where you, you don't even notice it until it's too late that you've been drowning the whole time. Right, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And when it's quiet, to use to push the military analogy, when it's quiet, that's because the enemy is preparing to attack. <laughs> I know your pastoral practice is probably comparable to mine in that, you know, when things get too quiet, you start to push some buttons to see what you can... <laughs> well, things are going well, which means things are going well, which means that somebody's... That's what they're doing. They're planning an attack. Yeah. That's what... The, that's what that's what the enemy does. I mean, I don't think we walk around trying to turn over every stone and figure out, you know, what's lurking behind the shadows. No, you don't have to because you know they're going to attack. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So brace. Brace yourself. <laughs> and if you don't hear it during the week, come Sunday, you're going to hear it come Sunday hmm. for sure. Because that's really what the church is. The church is that, that's that fire base in enemy territory. Well, and that's the awkward part is that people think that the church is a, what do we call it? Like a safe space or something. Right. And uh, instead, it's actually where... Uh, you know, the attack of sin, death, and devil is revealed. Right. right. Whereas the fighting, the, the the most heated, the most violent, around that flag, around that standard. I've said, uh, you know, like a Lutheran day school, for example, which is one of the ministries, you know, of, of a Lutheran church mm -hmm. sometimes, is, uh, you know, people get all caught up in like, why why is it not peaceful and content? Why We could just go to public school and be just fine. It's like, because that's not the right. battlefield. There's, right. there's no target on your back when you go to a public school. Where you presume to be teaching the children the faith, <laughs> yeah. or where you are doing that, well, that's, yeah, that's that's what Satan wants to undermine. Right, exactly. So he's going to go after you. Why, why are you surprised by that? Right. You know, that's where you should expect it. Right. In fact, that would be fun, actually, to just change the names of churches. Hmm. Instead of St. John's Lutheran Church, it'd be, you know, Firebase Alpha or something. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to take this military stuff to the I next do, level, right? don't you? Just jack it up. Onward Christian soldiers. There you go. Oh, Your you favorite hymn. Stop, stop. <laughs> it, it really is not. So there we have it then. Sin has overwhelmed us. Mm -hmm. This is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 65, that sin has overwhelmed us, so therefore be gracious toward our iniquity, which is an interesting turn of phrase there. Hmm. That because of our lawlessness, show us grace. There's a, con a, a contradictory statement of faith. It, it does seem paradoxical, doesn't it? Yes, it's a dichotomy for sure. Mm -hmm. Thus our sin, again, tramples us underfoot until grace comes and tramples sin underfoot. <laughs> but again, sin is a power that lives in us and therefore we, as you noted, are trampled underfoot by grace in the gentlest way possible. This hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> yeah. But then grace also raises our head above sin so that we become master and rule over sin, not sin over us, hmm. which is a very interesting statement. Hmm. Those who are, however, who lie in sin are either dead or they're just too holy to recognize that they're sinful. Therefore, it is an amazing thing. He who has no sin because of Jesus's grace and peace actually feels and has sin because you hang around with Jesus and what do you begin to recognize? Yeah, I'm nothing like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've been thinking about Easter preaching a little bit. Uh, but even Holy Week preaching, right? And mm -hmm. it, the the temptation, I suppose, is to say, you know, it's all uh, lilies and rainbows and uh, butterflies, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's all it's all happiness now. And you're like, do you realize? Yeah, I mean, even the even the declaration of the resurrection of the good news of the resurrection, right, is it's violent, is violent, and right, and is is Good Friday preaching? It's going to show sin, right? Because uh, what? Why else? I mean, why why defeat death if there isn't death? Right. Well, Luke's Luke's explanation account of the resurrection, for example, he has that stone being what? Ripped and torn yeah. off of its base. Yeah, it is violent. That's right. It's a very violent. And 
the angel isn't just sitting there in the tomb going, hey, he's not here. I'm just folding clothes. <laughs> Rather, the angel's sitting on the stone, which has been ripped off its moorings. And the angel's like, what are you doing here? He's not here. Go away. Yeah, the grave could not hold him. Which it, which it sounds explosive almost, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, it does. Well, we talked about this at length yesterday in adult Bible study because we're talking about daily bread in the fourth petition to the Lord's prayer in the catechism, mm-hmm. large catechism, that it's not actually death that scares us. It's not death itself that actually drives us and, and terrifies and horrifies us. It's the pain of death because all pain is a sign, is a is a, a message from death, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And that's what pain is. So when I'm a child gets croup, you. Yeah. you know, when the baby gets croup, that's death's way of letting you know I'm still here. And when the teenager says, I hate you, you ruined my life and I don't want to live here anymore, that's that pain you feel is actually death reminding you yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. When you exercise 20 hours a week and you're in competition and you're fighting and the pain that comes from that is just death reminding you, no matter how healthy you are, I can take you whenever I want, just so you know I'm not gone yet. And as my lady said last November before she died of leukemia, I'm not afraid of death, she said. I'm about, I know I'm baptized. I know where I'm going to go when I die. I'm afraid of the pain hmm. from the leukemia. She was afraid of the pain. And I think that's actually what clicked it over for me too. Yeah. And all of a sudden I started to then see that in Luther that Really, it's not death that's the the thing that scares us or causes us to despair or become hopeless. It's the pain of death. It's the constant pain because even if we can't name it for what it is, just the fact that it's there, that pain and struggle are there, affliction is there, is the constant reminder. Like I said, whether we can say, oh, this is just death letting me know he's still my constant companion, it's what drives us. It's what drives us to ask the question, what is the meaning and the goal and the purpose of my life? Yeah. But also it's the thing that then drives that human brutality that we're born with called original sin. Fighting against you right. know, what is coming. And so we we suffer for Christ, but we also suffer with Christ. Thinking about uh, that ancient image, not biblical, of uh, the, you know the grim reaper. Mm-hmm. Right, but I, I've never really thought about it. It is just the that is just the fear of death, right? Like you were talking right. about, not so much the way that we experience um, death in the present, or at least no. you know signs of, of our impending death. You know, right. I've been having some knee problems, right? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so actually, I talked about that yesterday too about what a crappy design the knee is. Well, right, <laughs> and it's like you know, I I'm, I'm getting older. Well, yeah. that that is a way of saying I'm dying. <laughs> Yes, it is for sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know. We just don't think about it. I, we don't think about it as actively. I think we think about it very passively, right? I'm getting older. We do. I'm, I'm but but uh, yeah, it's not death that's the problem. It's, it's mm-hmm. everything that leads up to it that, that really gets on us. In my opinion, at least I'm speaking only for myself here, the more that I've embraced the nature and the significance of pain, the more comfortable I am with death, actually, mm. in the sense of I can't escape it you. I can't fight you. I'll, I'll lose. I know that. So I'm not going to, but I'm going to curse you mm-hmm. uh, because I'm a baptized child of God. Yeah. So I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to be afraid of you. And I'm not going to shirk the fact that, or try and hack my way past the fact that pain is just you letting me know I'm still coming for you. I'm still here. Mm. You can't, you can't. And so my answer to death is, yeah, I don't care. I literally, I don't care. If you want to kill me today, kill me today. I'm done. I'm good. 
Literally, I'm good. Yeah. I'm baptized. And I, and I think that's a struggle for Christians. Um, having a conversation, oh, not that long ago about um, a DNR, do not resuscitate. Yeah, right. And, you know, is that, you know, is the Christian permitted to say, I'm just not going to fight anymore? Uh, you know, which is, it's not an easy question. I don't know that there's an actual definitive answer. Sure. Whether it's to say a DNR is never appropriate or it's always appropriate. It's Right. It, it, you know, well. Well, strip away all modern technology. Yeah. Just do that. Let's go back to 1525 and ask the question in the same manner, right? Let's just strip it away to a very binary. In 1525, if Luther had a DNR, would it have even mattered? No. No, of course it wouldn't. No, they lack, when they lack that technology to, right. like, what do we call it, life support, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the whole conversation can only take place in the current context, in any seriousness, in earnestness. Where, where our science, our technology has gotten to the point where... Right, can... exactly. Yeah, we've actually outstripped our physical capacity to maintain life. Because mm -hmm. I've had this conversation with people who weren't members of my church, but they were so desperate for someone to give them counsel that members of my church put me in contact with them. And it was the case of, if the machine is unplugged, then my child will die, period. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. child's brain dead. This ventilator is the only thing keeping my child alive. Or the child is vegetative. And I know if we unplug the ventilator, he's going to die. Mm. So, and for the parents, of course, it's not, they want their child to stop suffering. But they also want the child to fight as well. Well, they want the child to live because it's your flesh. Mm. And yet, as I explained, your child's not suffering. He's in a vegetative state. She's brain dead. You're suffering. And you can't carry that. That's why you're projecting it onto your child. Mm. And that's why, thank God, you you know, you know, called me because I can actually take all that pain and suffering and project it onto somebody who actually wants it. Right. And this isn't pie in the sky BS. This is mm. what the Bible actually attests to. Right. That, that it's not your daughter or your son that's dead here. It's Christ. Jesus is dead. He died for this. He died in their place. And therefore, to say, okay, it, is it going to hurt? Yes. Are you going to have survivor's guilt? Yes. Is it going to pain you? Yes. That's death. Mm -hmm. And this side of the resurrection, there's no getting around that. But, and there's the but. The but is Jesus is bigger than death. Jesus is the death of right. death. And that's really the right way to understand it's the way to understand the expression, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Yes. It's to say, yes. uh, whether there is life or death, right. there is resurrection. Exactly. It just, and again, it, it, it's not easy. Mm, no. It's simple. It's just not easy. Mm -hmm. But mm. I think to, to, to be, I don't know how to say this really, <laughs> to accept death, you have to confront death. And most people don't want to be in that situation because it hurts. Right. It hurts. Like like I just described, those two anecdotes, is nobody, not very many people, I should say, want to willingly confront death. This is why I, in the past couple of years, have, have put myself out there to be in conversation with combat vets mm. about these things, mm -hmm. um, whether it be from the counseling side of things, the therapeutic side of things, or from the pastoral side of things, because... When I talk with my friends who are combat vets and trying to understand my own dad's experience in Vietnam, which he never wants to talk about, and so I'm trying to understand him through them, it is, why do you want to go back? Yeah. Well, because it's so clear. Everything's so clear. Death is that. Life is this. They've, they've actually seen death. 100%. They've inflicted death. Yeah. Like they've been the agents of death. Mm. Mm. And as you noted earlier, again, 
we live in this bubble of safety, hmm. actually, largely because of them, actually. And True. so we we have the the privilege, the leisure to say, well, we can lick death. We can we can figure out ways around this. And we construct these new religions, whether they're political or health and wellness or new philosoph you know, new angles at, at philosophical approaches to death. But in the end, that's there are just there are attempts to hack uh, the system and say, well, I don't I don't have to worry about death because now death can't touch me. I'm safe. Well, and the reality there is that those who those who speak of death in such a way, in that kind of abstract, philosophical, but not real way, right. are those who haven't actually experienced it. So maybe, right. you know, right. I I have the audacity to suggest that uh, people bring their children or grandchildren right. or even... Um, to even view it, the body? Yeah. Um, 100%. Or, or just a funeral or, or to committals yeah. um, that don't shelter them from that. Right. Uh, because lacking the knowledge of death, then you can't even speak right. of it. I mean, right. it's this it's this mythical kind of enemy rather than an actual mm-hmm. enemy that, that we confront daily. No, I was going to say the first time that we brought our children to a funeral mm-hmm. because it was the first person who died that they personally knew yeah. and cared about. Yeah. And that the first thing, I think it was my daughter who said when she viewed the body, well, that's not her. Mm-hmm. And, and Annie, my wife, said, what do you mean? She's like, well, that I mean, it looks like her, but that's not her. And anyone who's seen a dead body knows... There's something missing. There's something missing, exactly. There's yeah. something not right. And it's not just the way the funeral home embalms and, <laughs> and prepares the body, but there's something more to it. There's something missing. And we would call that the, the tsuke, right? yeah. the breath of life. Um, but yeah, like you said, for my children to have to confront that as children <laughs> also opens the conversation to, yeah, this is why baptism matters. Yep. Yeah. 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 Because when you're not there, whatever, you, whatever makes you, you, that even a child can go, well, that's not really her. Whatever's missing there, that's why baptism as an objective reality is literally, not, you know, no pun intended, vital mm-hmm. <laughs> to our mm-hmm. death. Yeah, just as with sin. I mean, if we talk just abstractly about like wrongdoing or breaking the rules rather than actually say, you know, this is a sin against me and against God, right? Right. When it comes to children, uh, then you can't even speak of grace. You can't speak of forgiveness. What needs to be forgiven? Right. Oh, we just need, you just need to improve. You just need to do better. Mm-hmm. Rather than no, you need to be forgiven. Yeah, you need Christ, right? Mm. And not again, not in an abstract sense like we talked about. Mm. You need forgiveness that forgives the guilt that thing that or of that's that thing what you exactly. Said. Yeah, because that's the thing that's actually going to be used to kill you. Right, right. Powerful stuff. So jumping forward to verse eighteen, then I confess my iniquity. That is, Doctor Luther writes, such affliction is not unjust, pain, struggle. For thereby my old Adam must be cleansed of his sin and be put to death. Mm-hmm. We talked about Romans 5, suffering produces patience. And patience, endurance, endurance. Right. Hope. Yeah. Because the question becomes, why must I suffer? Mm-hmm. Well, again, as I said, you're suffering for Christ's sake, mm-hmm. but you're also suffering with Christ. And you suffer God, his punishment, his discipline in his wrath. But you also suffer the wrath of the devil, then mm-hmm. that's the agent, like you said, yeah. of that wrath. And so it is real struggle, it is real affliction, it is real pain. And there, but here's the good news it's actually killing and afflicting the old Adam, not the new man. And, you know, coupled with forgiveness, it actually brings um, hope, trust, right. faith. Right. <laughs> so don't run away from suffering. As you noted, 
we kind of largely escaped that in the modern context as much as possible yeah. to put as much distance between. And in fact, and unfortunately in so many churches, especially Reformation churches, we've kind of made suffering a moral evil. Hmm. Because doctors say what? Well, you shouldn't suffer and struggle. That's bad. What do psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists say? Well, you shouldn't be suffering mentally. That's bad. What can we do to alleviate your pain? And morphine's pretty and then, amazing. It really is amazing. <laughs> Xanax, pill poppers, yeah. And then in the church we say, well, suffering's not normal. You shouldn't have to suffer. Hmm. Suffering's bad. Hmm. Really? Well, we talked about warfare and the, and the battle yeah. lines being in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that presents a very different kind of, say, congregational life. <laughs> right. That we're going to not so. only suffer each other, because uh, we do sin right. against each other, uh, but also um, suffer the the pain, physical right. pain. Uh, suffer together, actually. Right. You know. Well, and to be totally transparent, my congregation, I'm privileged in the sense that 90 plus percent, 9 out of 10 people in my church quit church and found us, were led here. Hmm. So they have been hurt by the church. They have struggled and been afflicted. And as I was reflecting during the distribution yesterday, most of the people in my congregation are really good sinners. And I, what I mean by that is they're barely hanging on mm. in their life, in their vocations. They're barely making it. Not just in the terms of like paying bills, but just in their relationships. They're barely hanging on. Yeah. And they come to church, like you said, for a safe place, for a refuge. And all they want to hear, literally all they want to hear, because I've been told all I need uh, when I come to church on Sunday is to know that this is not like, this is not it. This is not all there is. This is not the goal of my life. This is not the mm. meaning of my life. Yeah. That barely making it isn't the point. Mm. Or, and ultimately, God has not forgotten me, mm -hmm. or God yeah. has turned his back on me, or this is God's punishment. Mm. And to say, no, yeah, you're on your second marriage, or your third marriage, or you got two kids by two different dudes, or you can't seem to stay sober for longer than six-month stretches, or right. X, Y, and Z... Yeah, you're barely making it. You're barely holding on, which is, again, what Jesus, he died for you. He died for that. And why are you suffering? Why are you afflicted? Well, one, because you lack discipline and you mm -hmm. keep making the same mistakes and don't seem to learn. But all that is to say, you're a sinner. You're still holding on to yeah. your sin. I mean, there's the things that aren't Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we call them sometimes call them temptations or desires or will or right. you know any of that. You're holding on to yourself, um, and this mm -hmm. really, really a mythical idea of who you are, right? Hundred percent, <laughs> like like of your own capacity or your yeah. own. Um, and you it's know, such good a intentions. Yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah. it's a comic tragedy because at a certain point you laugh at the absurdity of it. <laughs> when the scriptures say you are nothing. And, yeah. and yet you still think of yourself as something. Right. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not nothing, nothing, right? I mean, there's at least a little something about me that's lovable and redeemable. Yeah, no, not even a little bit. Not well, you are bit. redeemable, but not because of anything in you. Right. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So back to the book, I am sorry for my sin, David continues in verse 18. Dr. Luther then comments, as is written in the fourth, the next of these Psalms, Psalm 51, verse three, quote, my sin is ever before me and my sin I will confess. Again, the enemy is right in your face. Mm. So therefore, what are you going to yell to the to the people beside you and behind you? Here he comes. Brace <laughs> yourselves. It's like uh, Braveheart, right? He yeah. has hold yeah. as they're charging. Hold, hold. And then when they're right on top of him, that's when you, that's when you drop the spears. 
Yeah. Let them let them impale themselves. Well, I've never really thought about this, but the before, but the table in the midst of the enemies, I've always thought it, you know, it's mm-hmm. us versus them. And maybe there's some sense of that. But the but actually the table in the midst of the enemies is right there in your congregation. Hundred percent. Um you are at and, odds with one another too. Right. Um yeah. it's oh, only no. in the, the Lord Christ Supper, that you're reconciled. Yeah. The Lord's Supper is instituted in the presence of betrayal. Uh, in the context of betrayal. Yeah, Judas, Peter. Uh, actually, yeah, pretty much right. everybody. <laughs> right. At seminary, we're taught the pious Sunday school answer, which is Judas betrayed him. But then the the wise-ass student in the back of the row, that would be me, mm-hmm. raises his hand and goes, but didn't they all betray him in the end? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Didn't everyone run away? Well, John was at the cross with Mary. Mm. At a distance. It's at a distance. Right, exactly. <laughs> safe distance. Safe space. Very, very safe, right. So therefore, the wise, the righteous, and the proud saints, Dr. Luther writes, are prone to accept peace and rest, comfort and honor. They see nothing to cause them sorrow and pain. They are always pleased and satisfied with themselves because they hide their sin and do not publish it. They don't even think about it, but think only of their own piety and the sins of others, as the following verse says. A really sincere person, on the other hand, is altogether different. As the Holy Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 8, that sin dwells in him, and in sin he lies. He lies captive, although outwardly he has done no evil, but much good. That's so important. Mm. All mm. our works are no different than anybody else's works on the surface. But... Under the surface, sin lies in us, holds us captive. So even the good works we do, we do out of selfish motives. What's interesting too is, I mean, I guess it depends on your congregation, and I think our congregations are probably different in this regard, is that um, not every congregation uh, are, (laughs) you might have the one oddball who decides to actually tell you about their sin. (laughs) <laughs> the way that you know right. it makes everybody right. uncomfortable and awkward. This person is not too proud or or wise or righteous to to actually say, you know what, this, you know, this is this is who I am. This is what I struggle with personally. Right. Um, and I need help. I'm and I'm vulnerable and uh, I'm weak. Right. Um, because, hmm, what will that do to the community? I, right. What impression might it give? I mean, there's certainly counsel in the scriptures about about say the pastor not being caught in public scandal right right not not presenting yeah. himself as a scandal to the world correct uh, and which we can I think we can understand in the sense that um, those outside the faith can't understand they, mm-hmm. they cannot understand that to be weak to be under the Lord's hand you know to know right and to confess iniquity even publicly or, mm-hmm. or at least privately within the community um, is actually godly it's it's and it's beneficial. Right. Well, that's the sad irony Mm -hmm. is going back to my own people who I said, you know, they're barely making it. They're barely hanging on. They don't recognize that that's actually a public confession of their sin Mm -hmm. because they justify their life by saying, well, this is just the way it is, or this is, this is my life, I guess. But the reason they have to justify it is because everyone else around them is barely making it as well. Mm. And for them to stand aside from that or outside of that and say, well, actually, this is our confession, our communal confession of sin. Yeah. Would then to be, in a way, excommunicating themselves from this community of people who are barely making it, who are saying, well, I guess this is just the way it is. I guess this is, this is my life. 
versus, well, actually, this isn't your life. Your life is Christ. Mm. This is a manifestation of sin in your life. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the power and force of sin in your life. This is this is the confession of sin. And I think, again, in my in my own opinion, uh, uh, a seasoned and experienced pastor uses his ears and his eyes in kind of varying degrees depending on the situation. That I'll listen to what you're saying, but I'm observing mm. a pattern behavior here. Mm-hmm. And so I hear you saying one thing, which is a justification of your life, but my eyes see a pattern of behavior, which is a confession of sin. Yeah. And so how then do I as a pastor listen to that, so to speak, in such a way that I can get us to the con- the confession absolution part of this? Right. A kind of concrete confession absolution. Well, and it's not just those who are barely holding on, or who just barely are making it. Um, it could also be, as Luther points out, the wise, righteous, and proud, mm-hmm. you know, who, who seem to have their whole life together. Their kids are, are you know, performing well um, in school and in sports or whatever. Right. Um, they're economically sound. Right. Um, and, the, in, and their congregation is, is successful and they're making budget mm-hmm. and whatever it is, uh, that is also a confession of sin. No, 100%. Right. Because right. there's, there's trust and confidence in oneself. Right, that's a positive theology of glory, we would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus my folks, they tend more toward the negative theology of glory. Mm-hmm. They wallow in their misery, but then that becomes a kind of virtue signaling. That becomes their standard. Yeah. So where does God because want they you? tolerate it? <laughs> right. Uh, he's not definitive. Well, yeah, he's not definitive. Is saying whether in poverty or in in or in uh, what's the opposite of poverty? In wealth. wealth. Yeah. Uh, in sickness or in in health. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's found everywhere, uh, and, and your sin right. is manifest everywhere, too. Well, this is what Paul says, right? I've learned to be content and satisfied in any situation. Mm. Yeah, no matter whether what. I'm sh- yeah. yeah, whether I'm shipwrecked or whether I'm being celebrated, meh, it's all the same. <laughs> but if you're going to find your value, your purpose outside of yourself. Correct. Yeah, correct. If it's Back all to in the book. Christ. Yep. Also, Dr. Luther continues... Christ commands his own to hate their souls, John 12, verse 25. Now, there is nothing to hate but sin. (laughs) And how do sins come into the pious that they should hate them? He does not say that they should hate only past sins, which are forgiven and atoned for, but the soul and life, which evidently is still in them. This sin, the proud righteous do not take into account at all. They go on smugly and say that these are daily sins, not against God's command. <laughs> uh, that's a gold. That's golden right there. Hmm. This sin, the proud righteous do not take into account at all. They go on smugly and say that these are daily sins and not against God's command. Is that if a, this were what? Like yeah. I just can't. I just can't help myself. Kind of thing. What's he getting at? I'm doing my best. Uh, I'm doing I my see. best. Oh, yeah. Right? I'm doing my best. Yeah, I was pretty bad before, but but I'm working better out. Better now. Yeah, I'm getting better. Getting better all the time. Mm-hmm. If this was true, Luther writes, why does he say they should be hated? <laughs> and why does the apostle complain that he is their prisoner? Romans chapter 7, verse 23. They claim that against daily sins, there is no command. And that these do not ensnare anyone. Who is they? Are we talking about the antinomians? Uh, well, I would argue these would be his Roman Catholic opponents mm. in 1525. So venial versus mortal sin kind of yes. idea? Yes. Okay. Yes. 
actual sins of omission, sins of commission, actual sins versus, yeah. Yeah, we call them what? Petty white sins or something like that? Yeah, puppy sins. Puppy sins. Yeah. You know, sins of the second God's not gonna, of the law. Yeah, God's not going to hold, you know, just the, the little things each day against right. you. He's really right. concerned I mean, about the big things. Murder's not so bad so long as you go to church on Sunday. <laughs> well, now you're really pushing it a little too far there. Right? Well, yeah, exactly, to draw it out. If you uh, want to say that sins against the second table aren't that bad, well, murder's there, adultery's there. Those are kind of serious. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like there's this uh, tension in the Christian life, right? Where mm-hmm. we're being dragged down and being lifted up at the same time. And, right. And it's, it literally tears us apart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, old Adam dying and, and the new mm-hmm. man in Christ rising daily. Being trampled underfoot. Being trampled underfoot. Uh, it is interesting that he quotes Romans 7. You know, and Paul saying that he's mm-hmm. that he's their prisoner, um, because obviously there are those who have <laughs> rejected Romans seven as being a right. present tense Paul, right? But more of a past tense Paul than here, right? Yeah, Luther. Well, and that's a great point too. That there's nowhere in Scripture, other than what Luther just said, right? That grace lifts us up, and therefore we become masters of sin. The problem becomes when we think that we can master sin, much like the disciples can't understand why they weren't able to exercise demons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right? And then the, the second incident where they're they're upset that other people can <laughs> and wants Jesus to stop them. But in an but, order, disorderly or unorderly. Yeah, right. Way, You're yeah. not doing it the right way. Um, is that if we try and fight against sin, we become prisoners of war. Yeah. We lose every time. Every time. And... Uh, well, we was, keep trying. Well, of course we do, because we're dumb. <laughs> as, as Luther will quote the psalmist, we're like dumb animals. Mm-hmm. Or pigs to vomit, right? Or, right. We don't know our left from our right. But growth, he says this in his Romans commentary, that every day we recommit the original sin, the original rebellion, and every day God comes and redeems us from that rebellion. Wow. That's the nature of God's grace. And so every day we get defeated and overrun by sin, and every day Jesus says, come on, let's go. I'm liberating you again. I mean, that's the job of the preacher. The job of the preacher mm-hmm. is literally to walk up to the prison and open the doors and go, in the name of Jesus Christ, I declare to you again, you're free. And it, maybe it gets old for us, but it never gets old for the Lord. Thanks be to Right. Me. Thank right. goodness it never gets yeah. old for him. Yeah. He's long-suffering. Um, we're impatient. Right. Yeah. Like, how we long, are, oh Lord? Li- are you going to keep doing this? We are this? literally the worst soldiers ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what? We defected again. And right. Come, yeah. Well, it's like, let's let's do the same strategy we did yesterday. Well, we got slaughtered yesterday. Yeah, but I think it's because we weren't running hard enough. Or <laughs> I think if we would have hold our, held our spears up just a little bit higher. Yeah. Or yeah, if the, right, if the right side wouldn't have collapsed so quickly. I think we really, you know, maybe we just need to change the color of the standard. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the problem. It just, it's not inspiring as far as flags go. It's like, you do realize you're going to lose again. No, I really, I think it's, we, yeah, sometimes we'll call it the hold my beer moment, right? Or <laughs> yeah. the, or let me take the wheel, you know, Jesus take the wheel kind of moment. But it really is just, no, I, I think I can win this time. I think I got this. It's like the, the, the old washed up fighter with the glass jaw mm. who insists he's got one more good fight in him. And every time he gets in the ring, he gets knocked out with the first or second punch because he just can't take a shot anymore. Right. But he's just convinced himself that, it, he's only he's only ever one fight away from getting back to the championship. Hmm. And it's like, no, dude, the only person that doesn't see how futile and sad and tragic this is, is you. Hmm. And that's and, really Romans 7 in a nutshell. Yeah, and then the naivete is not just that we keep doing it, but that we think that we're doing it better or different <laughs> better, right? than those yeah. who came before us. Right. Like, 
you know <laughs> we we know better now we've we've figured this out we've cracked the knot we you know yeah we, we know how to be successful um at this whole fighting against sin game and it's yeah. like no it's not a game at all it's warfare one and and yeah. two you know you're not any better at it um you keep you keep abandoning the weapon you know the 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 armor and the weapons that you've been given mm-hmm. And, and trying to fight, you know, barefisted right. <laughs> against a right. much more capable force. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Satan's been around a lot longer and had a lot more time to get this right. Fairly skilled. Fairly skilled. <laughs> okay. Back to the book, verse 22, then to wrap this up, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Dr. Luther writes, make haste to help me because all others hasten to destroy me. For God's help is not where man's help is nor even where there is no persecution of man, nor where man is not against himself. For God is not a father of the rich, but of the poor, of the widows, of the orphans. The rich he has left alone. Luke chapter 1, verse 53, quote, O God of my salvation, unquote, that is that I seek no help or salvation either in myself or in anyone else, but only in thee. Thus also Psalm 4, verse 1, the God of my righteousness has heard me. That is, he is the one who gives help. The proud in spirit have their salvation. They have their help. They have their satisfaction in themselves. Their help is not the help of God. They have devised it for themselves so that they may not be damned. They refuse to admit that they are damned. Mm. And again, Dr. Luther ends his Psalms commentary (laughs) on a note of just absolute, it's just a bloody mess. This is, this is Dr. Luther just going, yeah, I knocked him out. What? What? (laughs) What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, again, we're talking about context and you have to wonder, you know, the proud smug saints saints that he talks about all the time. Um, You know, as he, I mean, I think he's referring a little bit to himself. (laughs) It's it's somewhat autobiographical, but also, sure. you know, you, like you said, his Roman opponents, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, within the church, you know, those who did not know the faith, who did not mm-hmm. um, believe uh, forgiveness of sins was present in, right. in the sacrament of the altar, or whatever it was that he encountered, right. that they were proud in themselves, and it was all around him. Uh, and th- again, that's nothing new either. No, and I, I know it seems like he sits in the seat of judgment against them here. Well, of course he does, because uh, he's, he's a savage. Preacher. It's fifteen twenty-five. Yeah, but he's also the preacher. <laughs> They're all savages. He, I mean, he, he is a preacher, exactly. He is making a public defense of the faith against Satan, mm-hmm. whether in the lectern in the classroom, whether in the pulpit in the church, or whether in the middle of the street. Yeah, yeah. This is not an academic exercise for him. No, and I, I think he recognizes that the only hope. Uh, you know, he might say for the German people, right? Yeah, right. Uh, the only hope is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. That's return to Christ. To, to return to Christ. Return that, to the gospel, yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, all of the like, you know, we've got it together kind of thoughts or, you know, we're really making it now. Yeah, we're good. We're good. We got it. It's that, enough. That that is a denial of faith in Christ, actually. It's Correct. Not, it's not faith in Christ. Right. Well, and, and we hate, again, in the present tense, as you brought up earlier too, we hate this dichotomy that God loves those who are persecuted, <laughs> those who are poor, those who are widows and orphans. The rich, he has left alone. Yeah, he's sent empty away. Yeah. As it said. And not rich just in an earthly sense, but rich in the sense, I think we covered this at the beginning of the podcast, of the sense of, well, I got all I need. Mm-hmm. I'm good. 
I'm good. Right. And this bubble of safety we live in and the wealth that we enjoy technologically, economically, socially, it allows us the privilege of the leisure to delude ourselves into believing that one, we're not inherently violent people. We're not brutal. No. And two, with enough work, especially with the assistance of technology today, we can discover the true meaning and purpose of our life. Independent of God and in, his word. Right. Mm -hmm. And even when we do bring God into this, we definitely are not going to focus on hating ourselves. Why would I hate myself? I'm awesome. Mm. Pastor said, I got to learn to love myself because God loves me. Like, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, well, that's therapeutic gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, feel good about yourself because God feels good about you feeling good, that you're good. Right. And it's really the old the old style of religion, if you want to say the old, the old timey way. No, hundred percent. It's old Adam's religion. Yeah. It's the yeah. old time religion. Right. Which right. is, which is God is there to kind of fill in the gaps to, to add a little something, you know. Wasn't there a book called the God of the gaps? God in the gaps. Yeah. God in the gaps. Well, that's it's, it's that, that's a totally different idea as in regards yeah. to trying to answer the unanswerable as far as science oh, goes. Okay. Right. Is to say, yeah. let's bring, that's when we bring God into the equation. When we can't figure something out, then we just attribute it to God. Which, oh, okay, I got you. Uh, that's actually true. And when it, yeah. come, it comes to our life, you say, you know, whenever things, most things are going all right, but if something doesn't go all right, then we'll blame God or we'll ask right. for God for help right. then, rather than recognizing, no, actually, you are utterly dependent upon him for everything. Everything, right. Um, and everything needs to be under the blood of Jesus, forgiven, mm -hmm. right? Everything that you say, think, and do. You do nothing righteous, <laughs> right? Wow, that's that's um, that's that's harsh, Pastor. You're harshing my mellow again. That's right, exactly. Can mm. you talk less about Jesus and more about me? Mm. And also less less. <laughs> if you're going to talk more about me and less about Jesus, make sure it's more about you know the positive and and appealing <laughs> right, attributes exactly. that I possess. <laughs> Accentuate the positive. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, turn it all upside down. Right, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, let your conscience be your guide. Accentuate the positive. God loves you when you learn to love yourself. Mm. Whatever pablum you want to mix into the drink. Oh, it's, unfortunately, it's, uh, things heard in the church. Oops. Yeah, unfortunately. Hmm. And yet, we are here having this conversation with you today, with Doctor Luther, to say Jesus is enough. Baptism yeah. is enough. Yeah, and that is a bu the bulldozer that puts the tracks on your back <laughs> and Correct. keeps you down. Correct. That's right. So yeah, don't. Uh, don't fear that shield smashing you in the back. It's the shield of grace. And you'll get and tread. Yeah, 100%. And, then you'll, and you'll raise, be raised. Right, Yeah. right. <laughs> but yeah, death and resurrection, that's the mechanism of our salvation. Mm. Praise be to Christ. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. I think you did a good summary of that at the end there too. So yeah, I tried. that's all we got. Uh, next time we record, we'll be right near, will we be in Holy Week? Yeah. When we, okay. Yeah. So come back next time for a brand new episode. We'll get all Easter-y on you, talk resurrection stuff. And uh, mm. otherwise, we appreciate everything that you do to support this podcast and everything you do to support the mission of higher things. Uh -huh. And we love you, and we'll see you next week. 